Good evening. You're listening to Three Moves Ahead. I am Len. I'm your host for this week, and I am joined by our good friend, John Bolding. Howdy, y'all. And once again, by uh, UNC Chapel Hill's Dr. Brett Devereaux. Hey, great to be back. And we're talking about, uh, usually when we have Brett on, it's for a game that like has like, oh, some really interesting historical perspective. Um, but this time it's Mountain Blade 2 Bannerlord. <laughs> which I suppose does have does have maybe some historical stuff we'll talk about a little later, but I think uh, I'm going to be really excited to find out what that is. The first time we've we've just kind of had you on as like, oh, I'm I'm a person who plays video games and we want to know your opinion about this video game and not what is the grand unified historical theory of Mountain Blade. Um, yeah, I mean, I can do both of those things. <laughs> Honestly, I've been on this podcast enough times. Is this the, is this the fourth or fifth time? And when do I get the jacket? The honorary jacket is what I want to uh, know. Yeah. Oh, yeah, you have to kill a jacket holder and take those. <laughs> yeah, there's there were only a limited number made. It's yeah. kind of like Highlander. Um, so, OK, uh, I mean, that's fine. I, I know a guy with a, an exciting collection of historical firearms. And, and John, you're not too far away. So this, no, this can happen. This just got way scarier. <laughs> yeah, you, you shouldn't have told him. Shouldn't have told him about how the jacket system works because you're easily the, the easiest to get to. I don't uh, have a that. jacket. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so now you 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 two are going to form an alliance to go after the other jacket holders, probably. So maybe I shouldn't have said it. We're going to hunt down the legacy jacket holders. We're going to go after Tom Chick and Bruce Garrick. Yeah, they, they, they're not using them anymore. So, uh, yeah, Julian, I think, might have one. Yeah, you can you can go go after him first. Um, anyway, Mountain Blade, <laughs> Bannerlord, I think we did an episode on it when it started in early access. That's like before that's the before times. I don't even remember anything we talked about on that episode. To be honest, I don't even remember if I was on it. But I'm pretty sure we did an episode on Mountain Blade 2 uh, Early Access, and um, I don't, it hasn't I don't it hasn't really did. changed. Did we not? I don't think we Maybe did, we because didn't. I was so negative about it. <laughs> well, I guess I can't say, well, it hasn't really changed, so just go back and listen to that, and uh, that'll be the episode for this week. Um, no, that was kind of what I was I found most remarkable when I first loaded this up, is because I had played it in Early Access for like probably a good 30 to 40 hours and and I was like okay yeah this is kind of neat but I'm I'm going to I've got other stuff to do I'm probably going to wait till this was finished and then I'd I'd see patch notes and I'd see patch notes and I'd see patch notes and I'd keep reading them looking for like when is going to be the right time to come back to Bannerlord and it's like mm, these changes don't sound all that revolutionary and what I discovered when I loaded up 1.0 is that I was completely right. It's mostly the same game <laughs> that I played two years ago. Those changes were um, not, in fact, all that revolutionary. No. Um, it, yeah, it feels way more similar than it does different. Um, which could be that I just haven't played Early Access. That, that for I don't know why I keep saying Access as if it's Axis, because that's not my normal accent. Uh, <laughs> but for some reason... My brain is just doing weird things today. Um, yeah. So maybe it's just that I'm remembering wrong, like, oh, it was way jankier. Or it was way rougher around the edges. 
in 2020 or whatever, but uh, it, it feels like mostly the same game to me. You you ride around, you fight bandits, you go to villages, you get, you know, a farmer with a stick. Um, eventually, like 10% of those original farmers with sticks will survive long enough to be upgraded into super Varangian killmasters and uh then you can you can eventually get like a castle and start your own kingdom and it doesn't seem like they really thought very far ahead on that part of it um because it's not a very good kingdom simulation game in my opinion um so uh john why do you hate uh all games that are good what's what's your explanation for that so one of the reasons I hate every game that other people think is good is because generally, and especially in the case of Mountain Blade 2, um, the game that's here is actually bad. As opposed to the game which people oh. describe, which is a fantasy game that generally exists only inside their mind. I see, I see. Um, yeah, like, I don't, I don't necessarily think it's bad, but it was hard to just not be like, I felt like this would be so much further along after two years of additional development. I think that I think the um, truth of it is that a massive amount of development in this game went into the core gameplay, which is actually the, the melee combat. It's the real time right. battles mm -hmm. and melee combat and trying to improve that AI and get the get the units to act in interesting ways and to protect themselves appropriately and to get that minutely detailed physics simulation they've got going that they really care about to work right. right and that stuff is undeniably really impressive right like it oh yeah it's yeah. hard to say there's anything wrong with it at all but the fact is that's that's just part of the game that's 50 percent or less of the play time the rest of it's just bad it's just not very fun Brett, what is it can be interesting with... oh, and engaging, okay. I must say. Like, I, I yeah. think it's okay. It's an okay video game. Parts of it are genuinely bad. Uh, yeah, Brett, what is your, like, history with Mountain Blade? So, I got on this train with Warband. Um, mm -hmm. So, that Mountain Blade 1's expand alone. And... Uh, you know, it has a, it has a place in my heart. I enjoy it. I th I think John is actually right in it to a degree in playing this. In that, you have to make your own fun to a degree that like this game is best enjoyed where you are filling in between the lines of the sort of emergent story you're creating. And unlike say a Crusader Kings, the narrative and writing isn't here to do that for you. So you kind of have to do that. You have to decide that this guy that kicked your ass is now your hated enemy and you're going to do whatever you can to destroy him or what have you. And, right, yeah. and you have and to. There is no, unlike in Crusader Kings, there's no framework really supporting that. They, they no, sort of, there is. PCs have the same like seven wooden phrases to say to you at any given time. Yes. And, and in fact, have less meaningful interactions with each other than they did in warband uh where at least they had opinions of each other that could matter as you court politic like somehow that system got less detailed although to be fair i played warband with a lot of mods so yeah <laughs> um <laughs> some of that yeah may i was come from that i was all about modded warband for a while there uh yeah i really liked the 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 viking mod for warband 
that had like the super, super detailed map of the British Isles where you would just show up at the same monastery and the monks would run away and you'd take all their stuff over and over again. Those were, that was that was good times. That was some good Viking content. That's your that's your dream life right there. <laughs> yeah, you know. Okay. And and unlike unlike Valhalla, it probably actually let you attack the monks. It didn't it didn't game over you oh, if yeah. you if you yeah. pillaged the monastery too aggressively. God, I I'm I still have not forgiven Ubisoft for that. Uh, the Vikings that <laughs> yeah. don't do anything. Politely um, pillaging. <laughs> Well, we can't we can't portray any uh, heroic uh, figure in our game as morally complex. That's that's not how history works. Um, well, and if we showed you how yeah. Viking imperialism worked, you might think that imperialism was bad. If we, <laughs> if we accurately portrayed how the Vikings behaved, you might think the Vikings no, they, were bad. They showed up on a river and found a spot where nobody was living, and they built a town there. And that's you know that's how. How it happened, yeah. Yeah, I think so. I think when I wrote about that, my line was the Vikings showed up for infrastructure week. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, pretty accurate, pretty accurate. Um, this is actually something though. This is a good segue for the grand historical theory of Bannerlord. This is one thing that the Mountain Blade series does better. That as a medieval-ish warlord, you actually spend a significant amount of your time raiding the unprotected unarmed peasants and stealing their stuff. Yeah. Yeah. That's like the best way to make money. It's true. Far to be early, a, early on to be a bad person. We're going to, yeah, I'm going to kill your militia and we're going to be here for the next month, just ransacking all of your food stores. And then we're going to go sell it. You know, we'll, we'll eat some of it. We'll go sell some of it wherever it's valuable. And, uh, Hey, Hey King, uh, we're not at war right now. I really need to raid some villages. Can we, can we, I don't know, declare war on somebody? That would be nice. Uh, right, and if you're a mercenary, the king is paying you to raid their villages. Uh, <laughs> Which is, is really great, you know. Yeah, and this is something that I think, you know, when we think about pre-modern warfare, we tend to think in terms of battles, right? That's the stuff that's, that's in our movies. I think uh, Bandalord actually does a pretty decent job of expressing that, no, this warfare is only rarely about battles. Because any army that's weaker than you runs away. Um, mm -hmm. They're not stupid. So really, the warfare is, is fundamentally about sieges, right? That's how you, to borrow the football analogy, move the ball down the field, uh, American football, um, right, is, is sieges. That's how you take control of territory is there are castles and towns. They are administrative centers that if you control them, you can impose taxes on the countryside around them. If you can't take one of those places because it's really hard, what you're mostly doing is engaging in this kind of raiding. And that is most of what the warfare was, especially for the weak, fragmented states of medieval Europe, um, is that it's a lot of low-scale raiding punctuated occasionally by sieges, which only then even more occasionally results in a pitched field battle. Um, and I think Bannerlord actually does a good job of bringing some of that out, although um, it is kind of uh, 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 diluted a little bit by the fact that you're actually very capable in this game of, of buying and carrying enough food to walk across the planet Earth, uh, which is not historically something armies could do. Like Realistically, what you should have to do to take a large army from one end of, like, to march into an enemy's country and get to that town, 
you should actually have to raid every village along the way just to have enough food. That's how medieval armies actually move um, because they can't, anything that carries food eats food, right? That fundamental logistics problem. So foraging is the process of raiding every village between here and your objective. When you, if, if, if anyone reads accounts of campaigns and they're like, and so-and-so foraged their way through such and such a valley, that's what that means. You raid every village between here and where you're going to have enough food to get there. It's forage in air quotes. Yes. It's a very polite euphemism yeah. for <laughs> murdered and raped every peasant between points A and B. Well, that is so like an interesting uh, sort of maybe missing piece of what could make this a lot more interesting game is there's not really there's not really a concept of attrition unless you completely run out of food mm -hmm. and then people will start to die or desert. Um, but it is like you could just stop at any friendly or neutral town and just buy like 200 sacks of grain and that'll be good for quite a while. Like, I don't know how we're how we're actually like processing this grain if we're just like reaching our hand into the bag and munching on it. Um, yeah, that is not how grain works. Um, <laughs> my my I mean, presumption yeah. is there's kind of a kind of a pottage or oatmeal -y kind of thing going on here. Maybe. Maybe. But then there's not there's also not like there's not disease. There's no like weather effect where it's like, oh, we took the shorter route through the mountains. But, you know, 35 people froze to death. Yeah, it is pretty it is pretty uh, fucked oops, up that you can yeah. do a siege for like months uh, or entire seasons yeah. and not have your army be devastated by plague. But it's also that like like every town, like every major town will always have 200 sacks of grain for you to buy. There's not like an economic model where like okay the, this this area produced this much food and if my army needs this much it means there's that much less for everyone else because it's yeah it does a know. sort of at least uh to my point of view a bad job of mimicking this sort of like medieval time preference where if there was a bumper crop like they weren't necessarily going to save 200 sacks of grain for next year they were just going to have some sick ass parties yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah, like their, I, their time frame of when to enjoy things was much shorter than ours. Yeah. I mean, well, this is, yeah, there's no, there's no seasonality, right? Uh, you know, once again, to sort of lean back into the history, this is one of the things where, you know, there's a campaigning season um, in the pre modern world. And the reason is that you want to get your army into the field right about the time when the, you know, peasants' houses are full of lovely grain for you to steal. And so the and the amount of food in the countryside, right? It different crops come in at different times, but you know, broadly speaking, from late spring through early summer, right? This is when all almost all of the major crops are coming in. So the food peaks then and then begins to steadily decline over the rest of the year. So if you roll into that town in like February, you should be screwed, right? If you don't have food supplies, if they're going to sell you anything, it's going to cost a fortune. Uh, because this is you're at the low ebb, which is why um, you armies hit the field not in February, but in March. It's why we call it March. It's the month of Mars. Um, and it was when Roman ah. armies annually marshaled in March. Um, it also used to be the first month of the year. Yeah. So, like, all of that being said, I do actually like that phase of the game quite a bit. I like the sort of uh okay I'm 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 like an elite crew of like a hundred bandits and you know we can we can take on 200 300 random village militia because 
were just that good um where you're just like going around and raiding and just being a terrible person um that is great that is something i feel like is missing from a game like crusader kings Mm -hmm. i think um you know i always want to play the wandering knight i always want to play like the landless bandit who like goes and makes their fortune somewhere else which they've tried to emulate with stuff like the varangian adventure cb in northern lords but i think the way i described it on twitter was that Bear Lord feels like 25% of an incredible game for which Crusader Kings 3 is the other 75%. (laughs) Um, Obviously, the battles being a component of that, but I don't even need the battles. I just love that like lower level play of like, I'm not a count. I'm not a duke. I'm not even a baron. I'm just a guy or a girl with a sword and like some highly experienced robbers that are just kind of going around doing our thing. Yeah. I I mean, I think that is the most fun part of the game when you don't have to immediately tangle with the consequences of how absolutely terrible the (laughs) kingdom management and worse, the character AI is. That is when the game is at its best, right? Because your actual moment to moment Mm -hmm. gameplay is let me find an excuse to start a new fight rather than to sort of abstractly have to, fuck around trying to protect some town that now you have to protect or figure out how to cat herd the NPCs into attacking actually useful strategic targets to expand your kingdom or what have you. So I I will say that I I think I view the kingdom management here a little more positively. Um, I I think part of this is um, it depends on how you, how you engage with the systems if you if you set up your own kingdom and you absolutely cheese the starting laws, you can have functionally limitless influence, which lets you keep your lords in the main army for a lot longer, and then you can wrecking ball your way across the countryside, um, which makes the kingdom management systems a little bit more palatable. But I think there, I think com- this is not if you're looking for a Crusader King style strategy game of kingdom management, this ain't it. Um, you know the the strategic layer really is the sort of thin wrapper of the battles um which are really yeah. the focus i think that's right you can have you know marriages and things but they don't mean much if anything they're just a way to recruit a new cool person into your clan to yep. use as right, yeah, right. or uh in the case of other things like the, the i find it obnoxious like the um uh, the ideal situation is like if you have a, a you know you've got your little sister or what have you in the clan never marry her off because yep. you're going to get no benefit from it and she's she just going to leave right and the most useful thing you can possibly have in this video game is more people in your clan right and there's just there's stuff that that i just feel like it doesn't it doesn't end up playing out the way that that maybe it was intended to uh, there was a line, I believe it was in the RPS review that just made me laugh out loud. That was like, you can set up your own merchant caravans if you want to constantly get reminded messages that your caravan is under attack. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, yeah, it, it does kind of feel like it, like once you're settled down, you kind of become a babysitter. Like there, maybe there's ways you can delegate it to other characters. And I just haven't dug deep into that yet. But it's like. Your villages won't be productive if they're getting raided all the time. So you have to make sure they're not getting raided. And even if you're not at war, 
There's the infinitely respawning like world bandits that will just come and raid your villages and they'll be unhappy and they won't be as productive. So it's like, you know, yeah, you can the... give char characters an army to like patrol, but it's really expensive or you can just do it yourself and never get to go anywhere because you're constantly protecting your own lands. I have to admit one thing that is inexplicably still not in the game. You can give your characters an army to patrol. But even if you set them on defensive, they will still go join the kingdom's main campaign army and get wrecked. Yeah. I'm like, give me an option to say, hey, cousin, whatever, here is your army. Your job is to pace the distance between my two castles and my one town and all of their villages and mm -hmm. crush anyone you see and go nowhere else at all. And it's that option the, is just not there. It's because the AI has the same superpower you do, which is... If you have enough influence to spend, you can summon anyone yep. in your entire kingdom, right? Yep. Yeah, influence is is weird. Like, I mean, there are there are lots of ways to exploit it. There's lots of ways that you can like join an existing kingdom and then just end up with a ton of land because you just banked influence and you can overrule everyone else in the vote for like who's going to get the next castle or whatever. Um. Yeah. yeah, it's, it's, I don't know. Influence was one of those things where you look at it and you can see, you can see the game dev idea here because influence governs all of these things that were really obscurely in, in Warband governed by individual Lord's opinions of you. Right. And that was a really squirrely difficult to understand system and it's like okay we've reduced it to a single currency that we can display and that you can understand and i'm like i actually really liked it a lot better when do i get this castle i've taken really comes down to does the king like me how much land do i have what about these other six key vassals are they going to be okay and then there's a background computation and yes or no because that's how actual politics works and you know you could you could pull on some of those levers, but not too hard. I think influence simplifies it. It becomes easy to game and it becomes really easy to just, yeah, as you say, have infinite influence and then you just run the kingdom out of your back pocket. It's also, I just don't feel like these people are real people. No. <laughs> most of the time. No, they're terrifying like, dead-eyed fish creatures. <laughs> yep. They they did add like sort of a personality trait system sometime between when the last time I played it and now. And it does like, nothing based on your actions. It's like you're renowned for being an asshole or something. Yeah, um, people will like you more or less if your personality and actions match theirs more. And there's a few archetypes of NPC behavior around as well that like affect their five lines of dialogue. But the thing is, because so much of the politics is subsumed into influence, yeah, people's I, opinion of you really only matters for two things, as far as I can tell. Um, marriage proposals and right. getting them to defect from their kingdom. Yeah. The latter is really important if you want to set up your own kingdom, but it's such a screwy process that you're going to save scum anyway that, um, <laughs> that it's just not a great, it's not a great system. Um, yeah, the transition, by the way, the transitions between different game phases, um, where you sort of, so the transition from, um, mercenary to vassal and then from vassal to ruler are some of the, 
I just want them to spend a lot more time. Like, maybe we should smooth these transitions. It's like, oh, you've become a vassal. Well, congratulations. We have no land to give you. In, in Warband, you got a village immediately as a thief. We have no land to give you, so maybe you'll get the next castle we take. Maybe not. But in the meantime, just, you know, maintain your standing army with no income. Have fun. Uh-huh. Yeah. And I actually, because yeah, uh, you lose, I actually really you like lose that the mercenary salary. Um, I think that's a, a really funny part because it's sort of like it try, it's trying to do this late antiquity setting, right? This this mountain blade round is it's a prequel right, technically yeah. in the old setting. So you've got this collapsing, split up, not Roman Roman Empire, uh, more not. I guess it's a little more not Byzantine, but also not. Well, there's quite three. There's yeah. The, it's broken up into three pieces instead of two, and I think like, and they hate each the other. Northern, the northern and the southern empire are kind of supposed to be the western and the eastern, but then they also have what they call the western empire. That's like this weird, like Norman Roman hybrid. It's yeah, it's, it's kind of strange. Yeah, and <laughs> yeah. I I don't have anything against that. I think it's an interesting thing about it is that it's like it, it personal wealth is a very important factor in yes. establishing yourself as a successful member of society especially in this sort of warlord knight class that you want to join and so i like that before you join a kingdom a smart move is to get yourself a nice big powerful warband and a giant war chest to support yourself with because you're going to yeah. need that to prove yourself in this sort of whatever first war you get thrust into so you can take oh. a castle and get voted into keeping it Though it is, I the historian in me cringes a little bit because people did not in the in the ancient or medieval world you didn't walk around with huge chests full of gold, um you held that kind of wealth in land which is the very thing you can't do, um at this sort of early point, and uh, and so it's kind of weird that you make the mercenary to lord transition. By using the fact that being a mercenary is so much more remunerative than anything else, including being the boss of mercenaries, <laughs> that that you just pile up all the money in the kingdom and then that's your cue to transition. Like that's not how that works. Well, it'd be much like that. The the gameplay would much better fit like chaotic hundred years world war France and Italy, where you've got these. Guys who kind of used to work for a king, but now just work for themselves and are little more than bandits with fancy weapons, right? They're calling themselves mercenary and just going around showing up at towns and being like, would be a shame if somebody sacked this town. You should probably pay us some money to protect you. Yeah, I mean, I think it also kind of I think you can make that go in. In late antiquity, I mean, the, the fifth century has a bunch of random, you know, tribal leaders who became Roman officers, who then became war leaders, who then became petty kings, who then got assassinated. Um, you know, you've got your Alarics and your Stilicos and so on. Um, so yeah, I how think nice it, would it be if someone tried to assassinate you in this video game? Yeah, that would <laughs> that, that would be a, which could happen in Warband. That was a thing that could happen in Warband. You could go into a town where people didn't like you and you might get pulled into a combat scene. Um, you know, another warband feature that doesn't seem to make it to this one. Um, but yeah, I will say I, the time period here was one of the reasons I wanted to talk about it because it's it's so fuzzy. So you've got 
as you say, right, like it's evocative of late antiquity. You've got a collapsing not Roman empire. Their cities are very late antique in their sort of visual design. But then everything else is just all over the place. The Kuzates are just Mongols. Um, <laughs> and they're just even, time displaced by 800 years. Yeah. And the one of the things that really struck me for instance, is a lot of care clearly went into designing a lot of this equipment. And in some cases, I feel like I know what museum pieces or reconstructions they looked at. Like a lot of care went into the equipment, but they're literally drawing equipment over almost a thousand year period and then compressing the stuff as to if it's in one place. Like you have like the Batanians are a mix of like barbarian nonsense and <laughs> my favorite kind of nonsense yeah, yeah I, I love then, that band but then uh, but then also a lot of like late antique fifth century you know oval shield male uh you know fairly simple conical helmet i'm like okay this guy more or less looks right for this period and then your your vlandian knight charges past you know full um male uh um full male kit a complete hauberk with a, an early enclosed great helm and i'm like is it's the it's the 1250s now i don't we, these yeah. two guys would never have met each other on it they are a millennia apart it's um, uh it's basically that i think it's the show that used to be on the history channel in the united states called like the deadliest warrior deadliest warrior where yeah, they would just pick is. two it arbitrary is. historical figures and be like well because yeah. a samurai defeat a dude with a gun Time to find out. Well, like the 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 specifically are the weirdest one to me because like they have these super Gaelic names and I think that they were maybe going for Gaulish was kind of their nexus of inspiration there. Like they have Oathsworn is one of their like high tier infantry units, but then also they just decided like gameplay wise every faction has a thing. And they decided Batania was their thing was going to be that they were the archer fat. Like, they have the best foot archers. So there's also like a Robin Hood component. Yeah, I think <laughs> coming into here, sort of a what if um, what if the the <sighs> British Isles were never anglicized yeah, or um, uh, colonized by the Romans. Yeah. Uh, and then, yeah, the thing. the Vlandians are like these Norman militaries. What if the French invaded the from Atlantis? <laughs> They've got some like Dutch, like low countries elements to like a lot of their names sound like very like Flemish yeah. almost. The Sturgeons are a mix um, of Eastern Europe and Northern Europe. Um, right. Yeah. They're yeah. they're like Varangians with a bunch of Viking stereotypes. Now, now here, of course, I thought when you brought up the Batanians yeah. and you're like, they have their shtick. I was expecting you to say their shtick is that all of their units suck except for this one unit that is game breakingly powerful. <laughs> Because that is that is in fact the Batanian situation. Yeah, I read the Batanians as um, Simon James coined the the term for this uh, what he calls the Atlantic Celts, which is his term for this sort of myth of a quote unquote Celtic civilization that includes like the Gauls and the Cornish and the Irish and the Welsh and the Scots and they're all Celts in quotes as if this is one group and. The fact is, none of these people thought of themselves as a single group. And like the, the fellows, you know, the, the fellows that Julius Caesar is calling Gauls did not consider themselves to have much in common with like Welsh longbowmen a thousand years later. These are not related cultures. They speak 
loosely related languages in the same way that German and English are loosely related languages. Well, and correct me if I'm if I'm wrong, but like the latest scholarship on the Celts, it almost sounds like um, that it sounds to me when I, I, I hear people talk about it, like that they won a cultural victory. Like there was no like great Celtic migration or invasion. It's just like this, this group of like cultural. It's uh, stuff. It's just stuff. stuff. It's not. <laughs> yeah. People don't move. The language doesn't move. The culture, as far as we can tell, doesn't move. It's just stuff. Like, and so that's what, if you actually talk to archaeologists of this stuff, you'll hear a lot, the phrase they'll use is just Latin material culture. You'll hear that over and over again. Latin is the type site that we use to define all of this stuff. So there'll just be like, Latin style stuff shows up here. But yeah, everything we find out, we like, Latin style stuff shows up in Spain. Did Celts show up in Spain? A few, but not nearly as much as the stuff. Latin style stuff shows up in England. And we're like, did people from France go to England? No. Actually, we can tell from burial customs, just the stuff. Latin style stuff shows up all over the place. Um, and in very few cases, are you actually looking at a, at a migration? Um, weirdly, central Turkey being one of the unusual exceptions, where there is clearly a migration of the Galatians, um, who are a, a Latin material culture stroke Gallic people. Um, but yeah, no, so it's just, it's just the stuff. People looked at Latin stuff, and they're like, this sword is awesome. I'm going to use it. Am I going to speak their language? No. Am I going to follow their religion? No. Am I going to replicate their social structures? No, but the sword is cool. It is pretty cool. I like all the swirlies. Like, I can see why that caught on. Oh, yeah, pattern welding is awesome. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, well, so, you know, from a military history perspective, obviously we have the weirdness to contend with that, you know, Norman militaries never fought against whatever weird Gallo-Barbarian <laughs> type of force the Batanians are supposed to be. But when you actually like get into the battles and uh, in terms of like how those play out, do you feel like it's it feels fairly authentic because it's it's fun, but I couldn't tell you if it's authentic. Um, so uh, yes and no. Um, so the thing I really like about it uh, is that it forces the player to command a battle like battles were actually commanded as a physical human being rather than a floating divine <laughs> spirit. Um. You are on the battlefield. God help you if you are on foot. Get a horse um, so that you can actually see anything. And you have to order your dudes around. And your physical position, your level of danger is a, is a consideration in how you're doing that. Um, so that's something that I think is, is really good. It can be really hard to make a cavalry charge work unless you're leading it. But then you're leading it. And if you get sniped in the face, that's you know probably the battle. Um, and so that's an element that that I like in terms of the interactions between unit types. It's a little bit hit or miss. I mean, it's not it's not comically terrible, but it's essentially it's 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 at the sort of total war level. Um, one of the problems for the larger battles is that because they don't want to melt your computer, um, you start out with just a portion of your army and then the rest of your troops dribble in as the battle goes on and that creates really weird interactions where like you get this sort of push and pull across the battlefield rather than a 
a single clash that is decisive, which would make a lot more sense. Um, and then more broadly, the game has a morale system, but it might as well not. Um, yeah, yeah. The, the, the threshold for morale breaking is set really high. Um, I've complained about the Total War games having their morale threshold set way too high. Um, you know, where you know uh, a Total War army might hold on the battlefield until it's taking like sixty percent casualties. In this, it could be ninety-five percent. Um, like the last three guys from the enemy army of a thousand men will run away, which is um, very funny mm -hmm. every time. Oh yeah, but that fourth guy, he's in it to win it, and <laughs> um. And for comparison, we actually have a decent amount of research on, you know, when does morale break? When does an army run away? You know, and for the ancient world, um, you know, in as much as we can tell the evidence sucks, blah, 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 caveats, um, uh, ancient army casualties after a battle ranged between around 5% for the victor and about 15% for the loser. So armies tended to bail at about 10% losses um, or before. And so that would write, you get a really decisive initial clash. The army comes together, the two armies come together, they clash initially, they fight for probably only a relatively short period of time, somebody loses their nerves, one of the armies bails, most of the casualties are caused by the victor running down the retreating losers. And that interaction you never really see because armies fight just to the death. I mean, you will... You will have your 150 elite troop mega death army, and the 15 looters will absolutely try to face you down with their literal sticks and rocks. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, and like so. If it's like way tilted in one direction, sometimes they'll like surrender or they'll try to like negotiate with you. But yeah, I've gotten to some into some pretty hilarious battles. Um, yeah, it, it's definitely that is something I noticed, too, is just that, you know, it's it's going to come down to it where, like, if it's a close battle. Yeah, 90 percent of people who walked into that battle might not walk out, which leads to some very silly uh, strategic layer stuff where it's like, OK, uh, our whole army has to turn around and go back and recruit more people. And ah, oh, dang it. Uh, what's his name? Got to the village before me. Right. So, I, so now there are no more people. <laughs> I can't top up there. I got to go find, uh, I guess I'll go recruit some Empire troops or yeah. something. Well, and, a, um, and it makes... We're going to be more than... We'll be more than happy to follow me into war in a kingdom that they've never been to. Right. <laughs> but, uh, and, yeah. and it also... You quickly learn that medicine is, along with um, stewardship and leadership, is the most important skills. Yeah um because that it converts guys who would die to just being injured and that's how you get them to live long enough to level up which so as a historian to me is really strange i realize that there are I, i'm sure a, a lot of like i don't know weird articles on the internet about roman battlefield medicine it's something my students bring up every so often but i'm gonna be honest with you prior to like 1400 there was no difference uh, in terms of actual survival rates from battlefield wounds, it it did not matter. It, you it got infected and you died. Like that's just how it went. Um, and so, so the idea that you can achieve this sort of huge shift by having somebody who knows what they're doing with medicine, and that's how you break the game, is always a little weird to me. Like, yeah, I'm sure it would make a difference on the margin, 
Roman surgeons were, you know, I mean, for the ancient world, fairly good. But let me tell you, uh, I guess, I think the blunt way to put it, uh, there is no discernible impact from Roman medicine on actual life expectancies in the ancient world. If it caused a difference, it was so minute that we cannot pick it up. Well, yeah, I think I think it is one of the funniest things in the entire game, though. Like it, it, <laughs> it makes it more like, uh, like the casualty. Like once you get a good enough medicine, it's like the casual casualty rate of like a World War II battle, right? Like some people die, but a bunch of people get injured and then end up coming back into circulation within mm-hmm. like a month. It's it's fine. Yeah, no, we sewed that guy's leg back on. He's, he's gonna <laughs> right. walk it off. Right. Um. Yeah, and it's it's funny because like so many of these medieval strategy games end up having to do that, I guess, because they get maybe feedback and playtesting that it just feels terrible if you try to do it realistically. Like, Crusader Kings 2 and 3 have both introduced this court physician character who can, you know, if he's got a high enough learning skill, he can save you pretty reliably from an infected wound that almost anyone would have died from, (laughs) you know, in the era that we're talking about. just because, yeah, I guess players hate it when they feel like they don't have any control over, yeah, um, well, and it's those situations. It's also for armies, at least, I think it's a it's a repeated impact of it feels bad for players if your army takes five percent losses and then bails. So we need to up the morale. We can't have realistic army morale, but now your army casualties are preposterously high so we can't make them matter and that's i think the trap that they that they that they find themselves in um and the less abstract your battles are the more you're stuck in that trap uh you know crusader kings can actually get within sight of actually reported loss statistics because you're not commanding the battle you're just like dude go there and then something happens and you find out about it later and you're like oh well but in a in in a game like this right you know if the enemy rolled up fired one volley of arrows into your army got lucky and all of your guys bailed you'd be really upset it would feel really bad it would be very authentic uh but it would feel really (laughs) bad and um and so I think that's I think that's the 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 trouble they run into. I mean, so much of this stuff is. I also, I, I want to jump in real quick while yeah. you were right there because I also feel like um, a thing that some people might not enjoy, but which I personally would find interesting, is if your your army was more willing to do stuff like run away a little bit, right? Like, yes, feel like they're losing a little bit, run away for a hundred yards, turn around and start fighting again. Right. Those sorts of moments like that, that there is, to my knowledge, evidence of in some fights from uh, the Middle Ages. Right. Like fights where for some reason it seems like. uh, I'm trying to remember, I I feel like it's it's Hastings or something like that. Hastings is a good example. Yeah. Yeah. Where realistically the the guys who were winning end up losing because they break formation to pursue the enemy. Right. Those sorts of battles just don't quite happen in this, and they really could have re- very easily if if your soldiers were more willing to engage, break, run away a bit, reform the line, and fight again. And it's a shame because the maps, the battle maps, are they were they're one of the things that's massively changed since the beginning of early access, and they're way better than they were. They're 
based on the actual oh, terrain yeah. region you're in, and they've got <clears throat> interesting things in them to actually fight over. And the battle maps, they're big enough for those sorts of engagements to happen, and it's a real shame that they don't. Yeah, you get a little... I will say, that kind of break and reform is much more common in the Age of Gunpowder that most battles, when you're primarily working with shock weapons, there is one moment that is melee weapons. There is one moment of shock, and then someone either wins or they don't. But you do get instances like Hastings where, yeah, the Normans think William is dead, so they get ready to bail, and he has to get up on another horse and take his helmet off and be like, I'm not dead. And they're like, oh, okay, well, then I guess we're attacking again. And it works out for them. Um, and that, that does have, and, and yeah, and you, again, technically the morale system in Bannerlord, that can happen. If a dude's running away and you ride up to him, he might turn around because you've raised his morale enough, but it's so marginal that it's not a mechanic reliable might, mechanic. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's so many of the mechanics in this game are like that. If you peer closely enough, they exist. Are they significant enough to affect the way you play? No. If a mechanic occurs and the player doesn't even know it happened, does, does it, it make exist? A sound? Yeah, does it? Does yeah. it matter? Well, and there's, I, I, I believe that especially in like Northern Europe during like the Iron Age, like a lot of the times that like the sagas are talking about, you wouldn't even have necessarily a shock battle. No, you would have, have like a like lawsuit, two, and two guys would the two. Do you poetry you'd have, like, at each other in a courtroom? Oh, sorry. <laughs> well, you'd you'd have like two shield walls line up on on hills opposing each other and like throw javelins or something and like, oh, he got Helgi, and then one side would go home, which doesn't really make for compelling gameplay if you're just standing behind your shields, hucking javelins, and then one side leaves. I don't know. This, and then maybe you have. I think that's funny because that's some sounds... of the most immersive gameplay in this is when you're like yeah. hu huddling behind a shield wall and there's javelins yeah. and arrows impacting all around you although i was gonna say being in two groups spread out ineffectually firing missiles at each other sounds like a lot of count of low-level counter-strike play doesn't it because <laughs> because yeah, this is yeah. how humans respond to that balance of risk right um, so you could absolutely make a game where that kind of gameplay emerged organically. They, they just haven't. Um, I will note that occasionally those shield walls would like march up to each other and then you would poke with your spears at each other through the shield walls. And I mean, that's what Hoplite Warfare in Ancient Greece was too. Um, and again, five to 15% casualties kind of max. So it's not, you know, you don't kill everyone. Um, but yeah, you don't see much of much of either of that here. Um, it's it's very kinetic. The the one thing, the one other interesting thing about sort of like the mix of cultures that they've created, and they try to balance this out a little bit. I think it's a little bit better balanced than it was in early access now, partly because of the cost. Though I don't think that they fully model the difference in cost between like a foot spearman and a cataphract really um is that yeah if you have like whole like fully armored like eastern shock cavalry or like gods forbid like fully upgraded horse archers which are you know as john mentioned earlier 800 years ahead of anything else in the game um you can kind of just win every battle um at least if it's in good terrain, you can run away and fire arrows and then run away and fire arrows because 
they've represented it fairly in a fairly simulationist way where it's not like there's a rock, paper, scissors counter to this. It's just, yeah, horse archers turns out really good. No, there, uh, if you have there a absolutely lot of is a rock, paper, scissors counter to that. It's the two, the two historical counters, which I actually love how this plays out, which is oh, um, yeah? fight them in a narrow valley with lots of heavy cavalry and just yeah, run yeah. them down or uh, have a fuck ton of guys with crossbows. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Just, foot archers can actually, I tend to play this uh, because this is just what I do. I tend to play with an infantry army with very little cavalry. Uh, heavy Imperial Infantry plus high-level foot archers, and you can wreck a horse archer army. Shout out to um, my girls, the Sword Sisters, mm-hmm. who uh, <laughs> aren't actually really Sword Sisters. They just have big shields and heavy crossbows. Yeah, but um, which I will say uh, that, you know, heavy infantry base with archers and crossbows using it um, in order to engage horse archers is exactly what the Han Dynasty did to deal with their step threat. Um, hmm. uh, you know, you have a mix of, of spear and shield troops, um, troops using a, a pole arm called the G that players of three kingdoms will be intimately familiar with backed up by crossbowmen and archers and also guys with axes and occasionally chariots. Uh, the Han army is fun. Um, so it's, it's like, it's a strategy that makes sense. It, it does function, but yeah, you can get, then again, like a big army of max level archers can inexplicably machine gun people out of existence. Arrows are still a little bit too lethal in this game against guys with armor in shields. Yeah. Yeah. This sort of, um, it's weird because in some places they really play into the like Hollywood stereotypes of, of what medieval weapons do. And in others, they just don't. And I think it's some of it at least has been very deliberate gameplay choices where they're like, well, everyone playing this game expects arrows to kill people. So we're going to have to make that true. Yeah. And I think it's also, it, it also has a weird interaction with the way that they've treated armor. So almost all of the armor that you see, again, there's some weirdness, mostly in Batania and Sturgia, but most of the armors you see in this game, I would say are based on something real. But the rate at which you see them is bonkers. Um, you can get whole infantry armies where or everybody is wearing lamellar over mail, which is for this sort of like late antiquity, early Middle Ages, that is preposterously super heavy kit that you would only ever see on horseback. That's cataphract armor. Um and inexplicably here is like a regular infantryman who is presumably not terribly wealthy or he would be on a horse um because if you're rich you're on a horse um you know because wearing it if you lose you want to be able to run away want to run away <laughs> and i assume the problem they ran into is uh what i have taken to referring to the thrones of britannia problem if you reflect the militaria of most eras accurately everyone looks the same um, like what the armies of this period should look like is the poor infantrymen should be in, in padded cloth armor and the rich infantrymen should be in mail and the cavalry should also be in mail and the king should wear lamellar. And that's, that's it. Uh, and there everybody, is a, wear, everybody there is wears a set mail. of mods intended to reflect that where yeah. they, they sort of reduce it. And, and I think the developers themselves tried to address that problem in this game by, making a set of 
different recruits, which are like the sort of air quotes, noble tier recruits where you mm-hmm. get your sort of heavy cavalry or what have you, the, your faction's mm. elite unit from. Um, unfortunately, just due to the way that it's a game and you can just game the system entirely, that that's not a real limiting factor on troop availability at all. Well, and you're, and you're also your, like your Imperial peasants eventually level up to legionaries who are extremely heavily armored. Um, and so I think, if I had to guess, I think part of it is that, you know, Warband was set in a very late medieval technological setting, right? You had full plate as an option, um, which people associate with the whole of the Middle Ages, but like plate armor is emerging in the 1300s. Right. Um, the Middle Ages runs from 500 to 1500. So like the plate armor part of the Middle Ages is very brief and at the end. Um, full plate armor of the sort that people think about, like Game of Thrones plate armor, is mostly early modern. Um, yeah, so that Warband was, was, that was very shot at with guns, right? Yeah, um, Warband is very sort of late medieval in that. And I think when they went this, like, if you put everybody in mail, I think for most players, they're like, well, mail is like vulnerable to piercing damage, and it's kind of a light armor, and I want something heavier that'll stand up to an arrow. Um, and, and that, so they like, have to come on, man. It takes like 2000 hours to make that male shirt. <laughs> yes. Yes. Very true. Um, you even have the number, right? Which thumbs up. Um, it's well, one of my arbitrary facts. Yeah. That's uh, it's David Sims number. Um, but, um, but yeah. And, um, and so the result was, these sort of scale and lamellar armors that I don't want to say they're definitely out there they're in the mix but in this sort of late antique early middle ages getting into the high middle ages they're not common um one they're mostly only really common in the eastern mediterranean and even there um you know you're still seeing a lot of male and even you know outside of like Nicaea or at Doralium uh, you know, European heavy horsemen who are definitely not wearing any of this. They're just in male armor with a helmet. That's all. These are the Bayou Tapestry Battle of Hastings guys. There's no plate armor yet, not for hundreds of years. They get into close combat with Eastern cavalry and they just like, they wreck Eastern cavalry in close combat. Now, Islamic generals quickly figure out, ah, yes, if I don't do that, then I win easily. And then they do that for the next 200 years. But, um, but so it's a it's a weird kind of funhouse mirror vision of the arms and armor of this period where there's a lot of like rigid lamellar and scale that yeah it existed but it it wasn't anything like this common and there should be a lot more male and a lot more people with really big shields because male doesn't resist arrows well so you bring a really big shield that does <laughs> um and so so the mash together of periods and so on I think kind of uh upsets that balance a little bit yeah I, I think i think it's a really valuable observation there that it it while it's fun in a sort of fantasy sense it does work against their semi-realistic combat attempts right actively yeah well and, and i think what we discussed earlier about casualties compounds on that because after a few battles your poor infantrymen in in padded cloth armor are already they're either going to be dead or they're going to be upgraded to something that's like two or three more tiers down the tech tree. Mm-hmm. So you don't 
you don't have like a stable of poor crap infantrymen that's always part of the army and you've got to figure out okay where are these guys gonna go because i can't really trust them to not break which would be like kind of an interesting extra layer to this um if it was more limited how many of those elite troops you could have um but yeah it just doesn't play out that way no, I mean, I, the last game I played, and to be fair, I went all the way to the point where I was running a kingdom, but my core army always had 50 Imperial Legionaries and 50, in, 50 Batanian Ian Champions, which are the, just the two top. They're so good. Just the two absolute, that is the heaviest <laughs> infantry and the best archer, and that was... Yeah, we're the best archer in the game, and also we can fuck up most people in melee. Right. And that, that those hundred guys were the core of my army, and it's like that just made like my army looks ridiculous. I'm I'm driving a Porsche across the battlefield. Um. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um. Well, John, you did say that the battles are your favorite part. Uh. On you know, aside from everything you've been critical about with the campaign layer, um. And uh, we discussed how the maps are pretty cool, but is there anything that is like? What encapsulates Bannerlord at its best to you? Like, what what is the moment on the battlefield where you're like, okay, this part is actually really good? Oh, it's I mean, it's when you get crushed into an infantry scrum because you've <laughs> lost your horse to a like a, a barrage of stray crossbow bolts because you were maneuvering to a spot where you could see around that hill because you wanted to tell your cavalry to get into position, but because you're limited to this third person view of telling people where to go, you can't be like, yeah, just go go over there kind of on the other side of that hill and flank them, you need to be like, no, go there and point it out to them. It's when you're, mm-hmm. you've you lost your horse because you were in that, that crazy ordering moment. And so you get thrown to the thrown to the ground and you have to bring up your own foot troops to try and protect you so you don't get murdered. And then suddenly you're in the middle of this massive scrum with hundreds of dudes crushing in on either side around you. You can't get out. Your shield gets broken. You start scrabbling around through the corpses looking for a new shield. That is when this game is amazing. That was literally, I mean, more eloquently put than I would have. That was also going to be my answer to the question. (laughs) Yeah, it's those moments are great. Um, Those like sometimes I will just like not bring my horse because I just want to stand in the shield wall with you know with the boys and 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 uh, you know just have that experience just me and the last of you um, having a shield wall <laughs> yeah um i also really like when uh you get into those battles where it's like there's three or four really important generals involved here and the infantry are fighting and i've told them to do their thing and then i'm riding around and it's like me and and my factions nobles are like circling around the other factions nobles and we're all trying to like assassinate each other with spears while this big battle is is happening off to one side um that's always a lot of fun uh because yeah if you can you can take out the enemy's important people that gives you a huge advantage uh so that's that's something i try to do a lot um yeah the like the the stuff that they focused on the physics the like kind of how precise the weapons are and the hitboxes and all of that is is really really well done um the actual fighting like the fighting you do yourself uh i really like it a lot i think that's that's probably where where this shines it, it is yeah. it really is um, and it's a shame that the rest of the game isn't built into a more streamlined <laughs> 
functional vehicle to deliver that experience uh, rather yeah. than the sort of scattered mess where there's a million things going on and none of them are actually very deep or, or interesting or fun. Like I would give up elaborate arbitrage trade systems if I could just have a more fun way to have a a war, please. Yeah, where, it, where my allies know what they're doing. Yeah, it it really feels like this is a game that has invested in like the Skyrim theory of what you're supposed to be doing as a medieval warlord, where like you have six careers. And I'm like, I don't. Why am I blacksmithing my own swords? That's a full time job. I don't. I don't have yeah. time for that. I don't. Why am I it's doing like? I'm doing, yeah, you know, I'm also, I'm doing trade. I own a bunch of, of workshops inexplicably. And it's like, just focus on the warlord stuff. If, if you need an investment system, abstract that nonsense away, man, make that numbers and, yeah. and, yeah. and don't, don't develop that system at all. Um, and, and instead really focus it because dude, being a medieval warlord, this will shock you was a full-time job. Uh, it, it, it took up all of your time. Uh, you know, you spent, you spent the not campaign season getting ready for the campaign season and engaging in the sort of social elements of being a medieval aristocrat. Uh, you know, lean into that. I don't, don't make me take up smithing. Yeah. Don't make me take up smithing. Yeah. We didn't even heard it. We think most of all to uh, space sim where Mm -hmm. there's one thing that everyone's actually there for, which is cool starship combat. And in this case, it's cool battlefield combat. And then for some inexplicable reason, a hundred uninteresting subsystems get shoehorned in alongside that. Rather than fair, uh, a I, handful of well-developed subsystems that support the core gameplay. Yeah, so I'm certainly on board with you on that. I just want to note that to be fair, I have a couple of friends who really like playing Elite Dangerous to be space truckers. I oh, don't absolutely. know. I don't get it. Oh yeah. That's their jam. Oh, yeah. And I'm like, okay. No, that's fun. That's that is a playstyle. I will stick up for that. What frustrates me is <laughs> I play that game to be a space pirate, not a space trucker. Do not make me put in a hundred hours as a space trucker before you let me buy my pirate ship. There you go. Yeah. It's like we didn't even get into like the building system where it's like you go on Reddit and ask people how workshops work, and they're like, we don't really know. Uh, but it's pro- it's something like this. So if you do this, well, and the this, truth is that all, you'll probably make some all money. These statistics are so they're so vague and dependent upon a, yeah. a sort of yeah. semi black box economy that it any depth that yeah. may actually be in there is completely washed out. It, it's diluted by all the meaningless information the game will give right. you along yeah. the way, which is and it's so exploitable. Yeah, to just like make masterwork javelins and sell them and then that will fund your entire kingdom <laughs> because the the economy isn't very well balanced in that regard but um and my understanding yeah. is that it's in fact best to sell them in opponents towns thereby robbing their economy <laughs> of money yeah right and then if you buy all their food um, it ganks their growth because uh, yeah i guess that's how things work yeah if you go to someone else's city and buy all their food and bring it to your own city and sell it at a loss you'll be economically profiting that makes sense <laughs> that is historically speaking that's i like think that's a... what the east india company did don't i mean don't correct yeah, i was me. gonna say that's like some Vic- wrong. that's some victoria three strats that's some victoria two <laughs> strats 
the entire world yeah. cannot modernize because I have hoarded all the machine parts. <laughs> no one else has any machine parts but me. Um. Well, all that being said, all the all the criticisms, all of the you know historical inaccuracies we could point out, I do at the end of the day have to say that I still like this game quite a bit. Um, I you know I've read your review, John. I think I like. Dan, actually, our editor at IGN asked me, what did you think of John's review? And I was like, I agree with basically everything he said, but I'm just having a better time. <laughs> yeah, so, for me, it's just, yeah, you. this is an okay game and you can uh, enjoy it and you can have fun playing it. There are yeah. just a lot of games that are better than this one, so I'm not sure you should be playing it. I mean, obviously, well, I if you're enjoying yourself, you should be playing it. Have fun. Don't get me wrong. I just think there's a lot of better games. Well, and I think, Brett, something you said earlier about like having to kind of fill in the blanks where the 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 narrative structure of the game doesn't really um, paint the picture for you is something that I think really enhances my enjoyment of this. And, you know, that's I think that's kind of where like Rowan and I split on Stellaris early on as I was making up my own stories about what was going on, um, even when when the game wasn't directly doing that for me yeah and and um, i think even for me as a sort of arch role player this this game is so thin that i can't even care enough to make up the stories to keep myself engaged for more than 10 or so hours of gameplay where would you where would you land as far as a recommendation brett i i think i think it is both fair to say that that you know Bannerlord doesn't fully deliver on the promise on the other hand, like this is clearly a kind of game that people want to play where they get to be a knight fighting and go from being a landless knight to a king and build a kingdom. Like that's an experience people want. It's an and and this is it. Like this is, this is the only game in this town. Is, this is not the best conceivable version of that experience, but it is the only extant version of that experience, which is exactly what you could say about Warband. This game isn't perfect, but it's the only one in this genre right now ever so yeah and has you know, been for you, over a decade absolutely for over a decade i can't help but think that there's gotta be space for somebody to come in and do this maybe a little better and disrupt this space although maybe the audience is so niche the money isn't there i don't know um Terra world is not a big studio but but if you want that experience this is it um so <laughs> I really enjoy that experience, and so I have fun with the game despite its imperfections. But I, mean, I agree with John; there are a lot of I imperfections. And if this isn't your jam, like sometimes you come across a game where it maybe isn't your jam, but it's so incredibly well crafted that you can enjoy it anyway. This is not that. This is if this is not your jam, mm -mm -mm, don't bother. <laughs> I am. I'm really, really looking forward to seeing what the modding community does. Yep. Because um, the warband modding scene was just incredible. Um, I have really high hopes someone so, will recreate uh, the Napoleonic era stuff or with fire yeah. with fire and sword, which was such a dope experiment in bringing some 17th century combat into the into the just, world. Yeah, being able to have bigger armies than were possible in warband would make that a lot a lot more uh, exciting. I yeah, think. absolutely. Um, Although I, we we still don't really have any 3D strategy game 
so far that can do actual Napoleonic army sizes. We might have to wait another 10, 15 years for that. I think that's honestly less an issue of melting your computer and more an issue. Think of how much of a pain in the ass it is to play a, a total war game with two full stack armies managing 40 units. Yeah. And then multiply by 10 and you're suddenly like, oh, that's why they don't do that. Um, I think what we what would need to happen is getting the AI capable enough that you could give fairly vague general orders to to mm-hmm. big units and then have them figure it out. And I guess the ultimate general guys vaguely have tried to do that with mixed success. Or the 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 Civil War game that um Rowan and Rob played earlier this year, I believe. Um, Grand yeah, Tactician, Grand Civil Tactician. War. They yeah. they had a lot to say about how sort of delightful their like idiot generals were during that, which is a great Civil War simulator in many ways. Yeah, it 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 definitely. You would need to take it in a direction where you know that the people under you are not going to be able to execute very complex commands perfectly and you have to figure out how to make the biggest difference you possibly can as a supreme commander with that in mind and that to be like a core part of the gameplay so yeah um well i think that's probably going to do it for this week unless anybody had any final thoughts to sneak my final thought on this game is that for all the haterific things i've said about it they at least vaguely tried a little bit to de-Hollywoodify Siege Warfare uh, mm-hmm. and impress upon you that you must reduce the enemy walls by bombardment, not with catapults that fire explosive bombs for whatever reason. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, you can't it's just, just like, a rock knock man. Down it doesn't blow up. Yeah. 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 The, yeah. Yeah. The, sie- the siege battles are not like pitch perfect historically accurate, but you know, they're probably some of the best so far. They're delightful meat grinders at the very least. Oh, yeah. You suddenly realize love... why people starved the town out instead. Right, yeah. I love defending a siege. That's always a lot of fun. Yeah. Uh, sitting on the walls with a ballista and just taking dudes out. Um, well, Three Moves Ahead is hosted on the Idle Thumbs Network. Uh, you can go check us out there on the forums. Uh, as I mentioned last episode, maybe forums... We'll be making a comeback with what's been going on <laughs> social media <laughs> lately. Uh, idlethumbs.net slash 3MA. Um, at least for now, we're on Twitter at 3MA. Maybe maybe some other platforms in the future. We'll see what happens. Um, and the show is funded by listeners just like you on Patreon, where we're at patreon.com slash 3MA. You can get access to our Discord. You can get access to bonus episodes. We're probably very soon going to be taking signups for our Dwarf Fortress succession game. Um, so if you want to get in on that, now's the time uh, to uh, become backer. Um, yeah. I have some I have some pretty wicked ideas for succession games, too. Oh, I, I can't wait. I can't wait to hear them. Um, yeah, for John and for Brett, this is Len saying goodnight.